God is good all the time indeed. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. What a beautiful song, wonderful singing this morning. Thank you, Paul, Christy, Faith, Choir. Appreciate it very much. Well, God is good, and his goodness and his mercy is revealed in numerous ways. Uh, One of those ways was uh, yesterday. We had a special time through the men's breakfast. If you missed it, uh, you missed a great time of fellowship. Um, I think I got a picture. Uh, There's one of the workers that was there yesterday um, making some great flapjacks, pancakes of all sorts, small, big. He had one that was the size of a plate, but uh, he did a great job. We had lots of food. You can turn that off before he turns any more shades of red. uh, I probably should have asked him before I put that up there. But I'm so thankful for that time together. We had a great turnout. And Jeff McTarian uh, did a great job reminding us of how Christ is our life. Um, one of the, he, he, uh, as Jack put it earlier, he said, there was so much, it was like a fire hydrant, I couldn't ex- absorb it all. But one of the takeaways that I took away from yesterday was he said, if Christ is our Lord, then he has to be our life. And if he is our life, then he has to be our Lord. Such a good reminder that it's by God's grace that we are saved, and it's by God's grace that we continue and continue to walk by him and through him. Well, we're going to look at uh, the power of Christ, that he is indeed our Lord in our life, this morning from Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So go ahead and turn there if, with me, if you will. We are going to continue through the Gospel of Matthew We're going to pick up the pace a bit. I thought about going through two chapters last week. Instead, we only went through one. Um, We're going to continue to uh, go through Matthew. But this morning, we're going to go through two chapters. And in these two chapters, you know, there are some weeks where it's more difficult to prepare a sermon. I just feel like the words won't go on the screen or won't, I can't write them on the page. But this week, it just seemed to just flow so easily as I read these two chapters, um, I was just reminded of who our faith is connected to. Our faith is connected to Christ, and through Christ we have all that we need. And so faith is a key word in these two chapters. Um, faith is a common word for Christians. It describes who we are as Christians. The Bible says we are saved by faith. We are justified by faith according to Romans Luther and many others over the centuries said that the just shall live by faith. Well, he's quoting Habakkuk in Romans. And Tony Evans once said, faith is acting like God is telling the truth. I like that statement. Uh, Not that we are to be actors, but we believe what he says. So I'm so glad that uh, Paul led us in the song By Faith by the Gettys this morning. It's a beautiful modern hymn written in 2009. Let me just remind us again of some of the lyrics. Um, By faith, the church was called to go. Just a a quick quick, uh, uh, teaser for you. That's where we're going to end our time this morning in Matthew 9. By faith, the church was called to go. In the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth, We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. By faith this mountain shall be moved and the power of the gospel shall prevail. 
For we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. And so we must remind ourselves what biblical faith looks like. Again, faith can be used in lots of ways. It can be distorted and misused and misinterpreted. But according to God's word, faith is connected to Christ. We're going to see that this morning as we look through these passages. And I want, as we look through uh, several sections in in these two chapters, I want us to see the words, the miracles, and the wisdom of Jesus through the gospel of Matthew 8 and 9, uh, through these two chapters in Matthew. And we will see not just the amazing signs, miracles, and wonders of Jesus, but we will see how people respond to Jesus. And, uh, spoiler alert, they respond by faith as we are to respond. So let us pray as we begin this morning. Gracious God and Father, we are here this morning seeking you. Lord, where we are not, I pray that we will crucify all pride and sin. Lord, I pray that we will seek you by faith, that we will trust you day by day, knowing that you are the Lord of the universe, you have created us to worship you. So Father, fix our eyes on you. Where we begin to stray, where we begin to go astray, Lord, fix our eyes on you. You are our final reward. You're all that we need. So Lord, pray that we will... That we will abide in you. Lord, we know in you we have all that we need. And apart from you, we bear no good thing and we have no fruit. So Lord, I pray that we will seek you and that we will find you this morning. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for revealing it to us so that we might see your son Jesus Christ. Lord, it's in him we are set free. It's in him that we can preach good news to the lost. And we too were once lost. So remind us of that this morning. Lord, I pray that you encourage us through your word. And Lord, I pray that we will go where you want us to go. I pray that we will obey you in all things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want us to look at three key words and three key phrases. The three key words are, I'll just give them to you off the bat, healing, calling, and sending. And we'll talk about the three key phrases as we go along. But healing is throughout Matthew 8 and 9. As you might have noticed, we didn't start off with Scripture this morning because we're not going to read all of Matthew 8 and all of Matthew 9, but we are going to read a few key passages. And there is so many accounts of healing, it can almost... It can almost uh, just be mundane or just uh, commonplace. Okay, Jesus goes to another place, he heals another man, he heals someone over here. And so it can seem very common, but obviously it was not, as Jesus healed many people. It points to the fact that he alone was a miracle worker, he alone is the Messiah, he alone is the one sent from God. In fact, look with me in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Jesus says, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And some people thought, well, that's the easier part. Not so. It's not, and nobody can forgive sins by themselves, only the Son of Man. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
He rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So we see through this miracle, through this healing, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, has authority from above. So there are many accounts of healing in Matthew 8 and 9. You can look um, at Matthew 8, uh, verses 14 through 17, which we will in a second. Matthew 8, uh, 28 through 34, which we won't get to this morning. Um, again, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Matthew 9, 18 through 26. 27 through 31. Again and again, um, Jesus heals. In fact, in Matthew 8, verse 33, after he had cast the demons out, they said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And so nobody had seen what he was doing. Some were miracle workers, some professed to be miracle workers, but nobody did what he did. And so it's tempting to think, wow, you know, it's tempting to think, you know, kind of like going to an amusement park. Well, that roller coaster was neat. What, where's the bigger one? Let's go to the, the next one, you know, trying to get a bigger thrill, a bigger amazement, a, a bigger miracle. So it's tempting to be amazed by the miracles. But as I was reading Tim Keller this past week, this really stuck out to me. Keller says, Jesus was much more interested in the quality of the people's response to him than the quantity of the crowd. So he wasn't interested in, okay, well, 50 people saw this miracle. Wait till I get 500 next week, and then 5,000, and then all of the people coming to see me. He wasn't about the crowds. What was he about? He wanted to see how the people would respond to him. Because, again, he came to do the will of the Father. He wanted them to see that he was the Messiah. So let us look at a few passages this morning. First, Matthew 8, 1 through 4 <clears throat> We see that Jesus isn't concerned with crowds because of who he heals at this very first healing in chapter 8. It says, He comes down from the mountain. Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So here is, again, another simple, well, I say simple, but it's very short narrative of Jesus healing this leper. The reason we know he's not into popularity in crowds is because who he's healing. You know, he'd rather say, well, let's heal the the woman, you know, who has this disease. But to heal a leper? That would scare the people away. Who were lepers? They were outcasts. They were highly contagious. So you're not going to draw a crowd by having lepers around. But Jesus is not concerned with crowds. Rather, he goes to this man. It shows, as you see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, particularly here, Jesus has compassion. He has compassion on this man. He cares for this man. He heals this man. And he touches him. What happens next? What does the passage say? Immediately the man was cleansed or healed. Jesus tells him not to say anything to anyone. Well, if he was concerned about a crowd, what would he say? Go, tell everybody you know, and tell them to come back. Go and and gather your family and friends. But he doesn't because he knows, again, he has much more ministry to do, and he is doing the will of his Father. 
What else does he tell him? He tells him to go to the priest to offer a gift just as Moses commanded the people to do. So Jesus tells the man to obey the law. So in case the Pharisees or Sadducees were nearby, he was not abdicating the law. He was not ignoring the law. He tells him to obey the law while he is caring for the needs of others. And so he is caring for those around him. So again, Jesus is much more interested in the quality of the people's response to him rather than the quantity of the crowd. We see this in the next section. Look with me in verses 5 through 7. Again, he enters Capernaum. He goes to another area. A centurion comes forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. So you would think after this man says, I will come and heal him, that that would be enough for him. You'd think that, that he would be um, sufficient with that and that he would be pleased. But instead, we look what we see in verses 8 and 9. The centurion replies, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Not because he says my house isn't tidy or I don't have things in order, but he knows who Jesus is. He says, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. He says, only say the word. And what will happen? My servant will be healed. This is faith. And Jesus responds by saying this is faith. Jesus marvels at his faith and he says, I tell you, no one in Israel, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then he goes on to talk about the children of Israel, that is the people of Israel who knew better, who knew the promises, who knew the covenants, as we see in Ephesians. He says later, if people of Israel reject God, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they did not have faith like that of the centurion. So Jesus reminds us that faith matters. Again, faith in him, faith connected to him. Our response, again, isn't based upon what Jesus does. Sometimes we can pray to God like he is a genie. God, I need this wish granted. I need this wish granted. I want this from you. But why do we pray to God? To know him to be in relationship with him, to love him, to worship him. And so likewise here with Jesus, who is God, Jesus wants the people to respond to him and to worship him as God. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's the suffering servant. He's the mighty Messiah. He's the righteous redeemer. And we see that the centurion saw that. He says, just say the word. Say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed instantly, immediately, if you say the word. So we see, here's the first key phrase, by faith we believe. Our faith is connected to belief. By faith the centurion believes, and by faith you and I must believe. Jesus is who he says he is. Amen. He is the Son of God. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah who has come to rescue us and redeem us. So we see Jesus doing what only he can do again in verses 14 through 17. I said I wasn't going to go through all the chapters, but there's so many good parts in these, in these chapters. In verses 14 through 17, again, he heals someone else. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. She's lying there sick in the bed. Immediately he comes to her. She, he heals her. She gets up to serve him. And then he goes on, Matthew records how he heals people who <clears throat> had demons. It says, there were many who were brought to him who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirit with a word and he healed all who were sick. 
but Matthew isn't impressed with all these healings. Of course, he's impressed, but he's saying, don't get caught up in the healings. Because of what we see in verse 17, this, healing Peter's mother-in-law, those who were pressed by the demons, all of these miracles, this was to fulfill what the, what the prophet Isaiah said, he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So this Jesus is the prophet that we were looking forward to. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who we were longing for. He has come. Hope is here. So Matthew reminds us who Jesus is, again, through these different uh, healings. And we see that Jesus has power over the winds, over the weather, over all of creation. He has power over the demons. So he is the one we must listen to. He is the one that we must submit to. Look with me in verses 18 through 22. This is the second key word. We go from healing to calling. The climax, the thesis, the summary, the big idea of chapter 8 is that there is a cost to following Jesus. I want you to see these key verses, verses 18 through 22. What is the key? That we must follow Jesus even when it costs us. There is a cost to following Jesus. It's not just, all right, sign me up and I'll add this to my rewards cards. No, it's following Jesus even when it costs you physically, financially, vocationally, and relationally. Look with me in these verses. Verses 18 through 22. It says, Jesus saw a crowd around him. Again, he's not demanding or expecting a crowd the crowd is just coming because of all that he was doing they are coming and he gives orders to go over to the other side a scribe came up and says to him teacher i'll follow you wherever you go jesus says to him foxes have holes birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head kind of leaves you scratching your head i mean we've read this before but you know, if you were the scribe there that day, I would be thinking, but what does that have to do with me following you? Well, we'll find out in just a second. And another disciple says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And so at first glance, it kind of, again, leaves you scratching your head thinking, did Jesus get enough sleep last night? You know, is he hearing what I'm saying? Because it sounds disconnected as to what he's saying here. But we see here in these sections that two different individuals come to Jesus saying, I will follow you. I'm ready to follow you. The first one, he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He's not giving any qualifications. He's not saying, I'm going to follow you for 24 hours. I'll follow you within a 10-mile radius of my parents' house. He's not giving these qualifications. He says, I'm ready to follow you. But then Jesus says, The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So again, kind of leaves you wondering, what is this about? Well, Jesus isn't giving a lesson on biology or ecology or the current environment. And he's not necessarily accepting what the man is saying or rejecting what the man is saying. What is Jesus then doing? He's helping the man understand the cost that is involved in following him. He's saying, do you understand what you're committing to? Do you understand, if you will, the terms and agreements? Do you understand the fine print 
in following me. Not as if Jesus you know, has extra conditions or extra things that he's going to pull out of the bag, but he's wanting him to understand there is sacrifice involved in following me. Following Jesus is costly. We see this with the second man. The second man comes up and he says, Lord, he says in verse 20, another of the disciples, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Well, he refers to Jesus as Lord. That's, that's a good start. That's good. And then he says, let me go first bury my father. Well, burying his father was important. And that was good. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus says to this zealous disciple, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, Jesus is not minimizing the importance of honoring your father and mother because later in Matthew 15, we'll see he affirms the importance of obeying and honoring your father and mother. But again, why does Jesus say, let the dead bury their own dead? Again, because he wants the man to know you must count the cost. There is a cost involved in following me. Not just the man. Again, don't separate yourself from the text. He wants you and I to know there is a cost involved vocationally, relationally, emotionally in following Jesus. Not all will follow. Your friends, your family, they might not all follow, but you, if you are ready to follow me, what does following include? Obedience now. So he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Following Jesus includes sacrifice. It includes pain and hardship. Not every second, every minute of the day. There is much joy and happiness at times. Temporary happiness and eternal joy in serving God. But there's also much pain and difficulty and hardship. The reason why I say all these things is we have to be careful of introducing Christianity as something you can just sign up for, have an experience, and then go back to your old way of living. That is not Christianity. That sounds more like a gym membership in January. I'll sign up for that and then forget all about it in February. That sort of Christianity is why some people say, this is a new one to me, I heard this this past week, that they are a lapsed Protestant or a non-practicing Christian. That is absurd. There's no such thing. You can create a label, but you're either following Christ or you're not. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says, Let us tell people plainly, there is a crown of glory at the end of the journey, but let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross on the way. This is what Jesus is saying. Are you ready to follow me? Are you ready to believe? You say, Lord, now. Will you say, Lord, tomorrow? So he says, let the dead bury their own dead so that the man might understand now is the time not to look back, but to look forward in following me. Following Jesus is costly. Jesus wants you to follow him at all costs. So it's easy for us to think, well, I'm, I'm doing that. But we must examine our lives and ask ourselves, are we following him wholeheartedly today and obeying him today? Well, look with me at two more passages. We've looked at the healing, the calling, 
I want us to see another passage in Matthew 9 as Jesus calls Matthew. In Matthew 9, look with me in verses 9 through 13. Jesus passes on from there and he sees a man called Matthew. We know who Matthew is, the writer of this gospel. But he's sitting at the tax booth and he says to him those two key words. Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So again, I want us to see the calling of Matthew through this passage. Matthew, a tax collector, a despised profession. You've heard many people talk about the tax collectors, how they were despised, how they were greedy, how people did not want to be around them. But yet, what does Jesus do? He calls this man and he says, follow me. What does Matthew do? He gets up, he rises, he follows him. So Matthew was was absorbed with the worldly calling that revolved around greed. But now, Matthew follows Jesus and his life is going to be revolving around God. And we see in this passage, Jesus called many others. He's saying this is not just an isolated incident where he's calling one tax collector. It says, he ate with many who were considered of the lowest of society. These were not the people that the Sadducees, the Pharisees thought should be hanging around Jesus. In other words, they're saying, do you realize your teacher's reputation is being tarnished by the company he's keeping? You know, they're talking to the disciples as if Jesus doesn't hear them as if Jesus doesn't know their own hearts. And we see Jesus respond as only Jesus can with a thought-provoking response to his critics. What does he say? He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Ouch. He uh, proverbially puts them in their place. He gives them a proverb to think on, tells them why he came, and then he tells them themselves that they need to go and do some learning. They need to go and think on these things. The phrase, go and learn what this means, was commonly used as a rebuke for those who did not know something that they should have known. And so he tells them, you should know better, basically. Go now and See what this means. Jesus places the focus again, not on the outward ritual aspects of God's law, but on the inner eternal aspects of the law. He is telling them, don't become self-righteous in your religious duties. We must let the righteousness of God and his grace towards us lead us in showing compassion to others. So earlier we saw, by faith we believe, but now in this section here, Matthew 9, 9 through 13, by faith, we care. Our faith is not isolated. It is connected to Christ. And if it's connected to Christ, if we know Christ, then we will care for others. 
Jesus says, I'm not just someone who obeys the law in word and deed, but I'm someone who carries out the law in action. So we see here Jesus cares for people, and again, by faith we believe, and by faith we care, because our faith is rooted in Christ. This is why he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us look at one last section. We go from healing to calling to sending. By faith we believe, by faith we care, and by faith we go. Let's look at the last section of Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. We see how Jesus shows compassion and how he cares through this small section here in verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You have heard this passage before, I'm sure. We've studied this passage at different times. But I want us to see again Jesus' compassion for the people. He goes to all the cities and villages. I'm not just going to go to the big populated areas, but he's going to the small villages, showing his concern for every person. We see Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom is connected to the gospel. The kingdom is a part of the gospel, showing that God's news has come to all people. We see Jesus heals those who are afflicted and oppressed, again, showing his compassion for the people. But what I want us to focus on is the last two verses. As he's showing compassion for the people, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. He says to his disciples who are there with him, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So by faith we believe, by faith we care, and by faith we go. We go not alone, but we go in the power and the authority of Christ. We go with His blessing. We go with Him leading us because, again, He's with us to the end of the age. So we must see our calling is to go. We are a called people, but we also are a sent people. We go with confidence because what does it say? That the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. And also we go because whose harvest is this? This is the Lord's harvest. And also we go, because again I already said this, He goes with us. He goes with us. And so what I want us to do as a call to action is to not just think about what we have heard, but to respond and to pray these, these, these verses. I'm going to lead us in a prayer as we close. But it's important for us to pray God's word, 
It's important for us to believe God's word, and it's, it's important for us to obey God's word. Amen. So as I pray these verses, I want to encourage you um, not just to do this because I say to do this, but to join me up here at the front as we pray for laborers. It's no secret that we are a small church. And it's not bad that we are a small church because we are God's people, but we need more laborers to help us in the field. So why don't we do what God's word calls us to do and to pray for more laborers to join us so we can proclaim God's goodness, his glory, and his wisdom in our community. Because you know lost people at work, in your neighborhood, um, in your communities that need Jesus. And we need people to join us in in going to them. So let me pray for us. And then as we sing the last song, which is very fitting, I've decided to follow Jesus. Uh, Come, join me here at the front as we pray together. Let's pray.